Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Janet Gregory. Based in Calgary, Janet is an agile testing coach and consultant, podcaster, and along with her colleague, Lisa Crispin, author of a number of both traditionally published and self-published books. You can follow her on Twitter at JanetGregoryCA, and check out her website at JanetGregory.ca, as well as at AgileTester.ca and at AgileTestingFellow.com. And you can also find her and Lisa's very entertaining and informative Donkeys and Dragons podcast on YouTube and wherever you find your podcasts. Janet is the co-author of the LeanPub book, Agile Testing Condensed, in which she and Lisa provide an easy-to-read but comprehensive overview of how to build a quality-based process and team culture in an agile software development context. In this interview, we're going to talk about Janet's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience writing in both the traditional publishing world and in the self-publishing world. So thank you very much, Janet, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. I was was quite an introduction. (laughs) I I try to get it all in there. We put links to everything in the transcription. So, you know, the the transcription page on LeanPub ends up being a bit of a place where people can go to find everything they're looking for. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in programming and technology. Oh, that's a a long, well, we'll try to keep it short. But um, I've had... a lot of years of experience, as people may or may not know. I I tend to say I'm semi-retired, but I'm not sure how long that will last um, until I actually retire. But I started my career, I guess, um, and I'm gonna call it like a second or a third career because I, you know, kind of did a very traditional, um, worked for a little bit, got married, and then um, raised my family. But we, um, when, my, when my children were like young, grade one, grade two, had the most wonderful experience being able to move overseas and lived in Singapore for a year and in Jakarta for a year, which was really uh, the basis for a lot of other things like traveling. But then I come back from that and I thought, now what do I want to do? Because I didn't want to go back to my old government kind of job that I had way before. And so I thought, time to go to university or college or something. So I, I took out and I started looking at what was available. And I realized I, the only option I had because my children were both in competitive sports was university because I could choose the uh, courses when I wanted them and take partial days versus some kind of college which goes from eight to five. So then I got out the university calendar and I started looking to see what could I do? What could I actually take? Um, And kind of what appealed to me. And and it was two options I come up with. And one was computer science. The other was home economics. And I looked at him and I, eh, no money in home economics. And I chose to come into computer science. So I had to upgrade some of my marks and some of those things. But then I went into university and uh, became a programmer. Um, So I went full-time for four years while trying to raise my kids and take them to all these things. But when I got out, I did programming for six years. Um, My first job was at the uh, Vancouver Stock Exchange. And I, I did that for about four or five years and then moved to, Cal- uh, to Calgary. And um, in that next few years, I moved from being a programmer into being a QA manager, because as my boss at the time said, I was the only programmer 
that was complaining about process and lack of quality. So I got this, the job, never looked back. Um, and so that the whole testing idea uh, was way better. It was a better fit for me and uh, fell, fell into Agile, I guess. It didn't really fall into Agile. It kind of adopted me um, because I became a, a tester on an Agile team. And I just thought, oh, there's, there's no comparison to what I had been doing to what was available. And then um, from there, it just the last 20 years, uh, working with Lisa Crispin on so many projects, books, but also presentations and all kinds of other things. So that's kind of the progression through there. Thanks very much for sharing that really great story. I can tell that there, there it could go on a lot if you wanted to. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask a couple of specific things. One is, um, yeah. I think maybe being a fellow Canadian, uh, your uh, code words about competitive sports and the amount of time it takes probably refers to hockey. Uh, no, because no? I oh, have really? I have two daughters. Okay. Um, one was in gym gymnastics, oh, and yeah. one was in synchronized swimming. Um, both making it to the national level so oh, yeah okay oh well fantastic I mean that, that's amazing I had a cousin who was training in Calgary actually you know mm -hmm. on that on that path she eventually decided not to go down it but yeah gymnastics is an incredible commitment um, yeah. for the parents as, but I mean of course for the kids as well the reason I brought up hockey is because I still have nightmares about you know <laughs> waking up at like 4 30 in the morning and minus 30 to go an hour outside of town to like play on a rink for an hour yeah, um, uh, exactly. That's what it's like. I um, totally understand that. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so, and actually, uh, one, one specific thing I wanted to ask you about was, so when you were, I'm, I'm just trying to put the timeline together a little bit, but so mm -hmm. when you, let's say you, when you went to Jakarta, um, you know, this would have been in the days before you could have, you know, gone on a website to see like, what's it like and what's it like to live in Jakarta, right? So yeah. what, what was, what was that like? Just, just, you know, scary, very, very scary. I was, um, because we, you couldn't hardly even get a phone call out, right? Um, so I was really glad that we went to Singapore first because it was a really nice transition. Um, so we spent a year in Singapore and then we went to Jakarta and it was so eye-opening for me. Um, uh, and, but it was really good for my children too because they went to an international school and I said, it was probably the best thing for them because there was 54 nationalities in that school uh, and 54 different languages spoken. Um, so the, the language of the school was English, but they had, my daughters had to learn a little bit of Indonesian because that's where we lived. So it was kind of fun, but um, it was a great experience for them. And for me, it really made me appreciate what we have in Canada a lot. Funny, it's funny, this is a total coincidence, but uh, uh, some friends of mine, a couple um, taught at an international school in Jakarta mm. for five years. Um, they'd been to Amman and Kiev and stuff like that before yes. that. So they were kind of part of that world of traveling around and yep. that that experience for their son, it's just like you described. I mean, you know, just really amazing getting to have that experience. And it's something you carry with you your whole so, life, you know? Absolutely um, do. Yeah. yeah, we talk about diversity a lot now and I'm just thinking, just being exposed to the different cultures makes you realize, especially when you are um, the outsider, right? Yeah. Um, like I remember, so we moved to Jakarta and <clears throat> after we got into our house, my husband left for a month. And um, 
I had a driver who spoke a little bit of, because you can't drive yourself there. Just, it's impossible. Um, so I had a driver who spoke English fairly well, but I, so I had to take him with me in to go buy uh, uh, groceries, to go buy, I wanted a lamp. You, you can't just go into a store and buy a lamp if you don't speak their language. So, I, you know, I, I felt really sorry for my driver, but I was so glad he was my lifeline because, um, and you get to know the community really well as well, the people around you, um, because you need to. You can't just stay in isolation. It's, uh, it would be a very scary thing otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. And also the contrast of, of you know, just such different places like, you know, you know, Western Canada and then Singapore yes. and Jakarta. It's a really interesting mix of experiences. Um, and so just 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 I'm, we're not going to go into everything you did, but um, I, I did. I did. I actually was okay. quite interested when I saw that your first job as a programmer was at a stock exchange. Yeah. And this was in this is all on LinkedIn. So it's in the I'm not giving anything away when I say it was in the early 90s. Um, and yeah. what kind of what kind of work did a programmer do for a stock exchange at that at that time? Well, I was working on the um, clearing system, actually, but we also had, there was a trading system that was being worked on at the same time. Um, so it was um, on a big, on a mainframe, right? We had to, we were, we were programming in COBOL, and that was something I did not take in university. So to, to learn to program in COBOL, and, and um, I learned a lot about testing because it was a quality, of course, when you're dealing with stock exchange things, you're passing and the clearing system passing through billions of dollars all the time. You can't afford mistakes. It just, you can't. So testing and, and quality was such an important part of what we did. Um, and I, I tell this story quite often was my supervisor at the time would come in every morning and he'd sit with me and he'd say, so Janet, what are you gonna work on today? So I would tell him, and then he'd say, so how are you gonna test that, Janet? And so I'd have to walk through my thought processes um, because we didn't have testers. We were only programmers. And at the end of the day, he'd come back and he'd sit with me and he'd go, so Janet, walk me through what you did today and how did you test that? And so I think that was probably where I got the basis for um, quality and thinking about the processes and how we did things, which is why I ended up in testing in the long run. And, and did you actually, I'm curious, I've got a couple of questions mm -hmm. about this. Um, did you take any kind of testing classes as part of your computer science degree or anything like that? Was, were you introduced uh, to the concept? Absolutely not. Right. I don't think testing was. Uh, I was very fortunate in university. So I went in as a mature student and um, I fell into this group of other mature students. Um, I was a little bit more mature than they were. I, I, um, but one of my best friends, um, she was 28, so quite a bit younger than I was. But we both um, had a, a very similar mindset. And we worked really well together. So when the, the professor, when we were doing um, our uh, uh, exercises and things like that in our programs, we would test each other's um, programs just to kind of help each other. So we weren't taught how to do it, but I think it's always just been there in my, I've, I often say that if you're a tester, it's a, almost a calling, it's, it's what you do. And so I think I kind of fell into it quite naturally. It's the way I thought, 
But no, in university, absolutely not a single one on testing. And um, things are obviously a lot different now um, in the industry. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's been like testing is a, is a thing, basically, you know, in a way that it wasn't in the past and things like that. And uh, one question, this is a version of the question I often ask on the podcast, which is, if you were, you know, 28 years old and starting out in a career <laughs> in, in technology <laughs> now, um, would you go to university and get a full four-year computer science degree or would you choose another path? I think... Um... I think I'd probably go back to university because it's not the programming that they teach you that is, I, I could go to any, I could take programming online to teach you the classes. But I think what university taught, at least taught me, was um, it taught me how to learn, how to do research, how to think for myself, how to challenge, how to, to um, approach things differently how to work on my own, how to work in a team. It was more than just learning how to program. That was really only a, a very small part of it. So I quite enjoyed my university experience, even though I couldn't do all of the things that most university students do. But uh, I had and, to make some hard choices. Yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> thanks very much for sharing <laughs> that. Um, and so you actually eventually made a move uh, to being a consultant uh, and being more more independent, um, which is actually something that a lot of Lean Pub authors uh, have done at some point in their mm -hmm. careers. Um, and probably not an accident that they go into self-publishing if they've got that kind of independent streak in them. Um, what was that? What was that transition like from sort of working kind of regular jobs to being a consultant? Well, I had two. So I had my job at. Uh, Vancouver Stock Exchange. And then we moved to Calgary, mostly because my husband got transferred. So um, when we moved to Calgary, I took another job um, in Calgary and worked for them for five years, which was probably two years too long for that particular thing. Um, I took a, another job as a QA manager and then the dot-com bust happened. And so that's when I went and became a contractor. And I found that some of my contracting um, experiences were as long as my full-time jobs. So I ended up contracting, um, kind of going back and forth to a full-time job and then contracting. And, and then uh, when Lisa and I published our first book, uh, because I'd been working full-time and we had been working, writing our book full-time for about a year and a half, I was exhausted. So I said, I need to take three months off. So I did. I took from October to January off. And then in the January, I was approached by a company and they said, do you have a course to go with that book? And I went, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> And they said, would you develop one and we will help you. And so at that point, I all of a sudden become a, a trainer as well. And that's when I really made the, the transition into full-time consultant. I was not even a contractor anymore. I was consulting and training and um, it just kind of went from there and never looked back, ever looked back. Um, one segment that we added to the podcast a year and a half ago now was asking people about their experience of the pandemic where they where they are and or where they were and um uh you know given given the kind of work that they do and i was just wondering if for a few minutes you could explain where you are i said i said earlier you were normally based in calgary 
but if you could tell us a little bit about where, where you are and what it's been like yeah. for you. All right, so um, I also had mentioned that we were semi-retired, right? That I was semi-retired. So we like to spend about three months south of the border, January, February, and March. We like to escape our Calgary winters, um, which is quite normal. That's why we're called snowbirds. We like to leave. Uh, but we were down in Arizona um, when we got the, you know, the, the call from, from the prime minister saying, everybody come back, you know, we're closing borders and so on. So we drove back um, and we crossed the border, went to Calgary um, and packed up what we wanted. And then we drove directly here to Windermere, British Columbia, which is a small little village. Um, it's our summer home is what we where we what we usually use it for. But since March 2020, we have been here in our summer home and kind of going back and forth to Calgary every once in a while, making a Costco trip, for example. <laughs> right. Um, so we've been um, I think what's been the most different for me is I've always worked from home since I've started consulting, but we've traveled so many places. And all of a sudden, we've been home for over a year and a half, not gone anywhere, except, you know, to the grocery store to Calgary, and that's been about it. And so other than the, the lack of, of being able to, to see the world, and um, I miss that a lot. Uh, it's been pretty good, because I've got a view of the mountains here. Um, we have a lake a kilometer away. It's, uh, it's pretty nice. It's quiet. And um, I was just, just curious about the details. You know, did people start wearing masks a lot kind of early on or anything? Like um, well, one of the, the reasons we came to here to Windermere rather than stay in Calgary is because there's so many fewer people. Um, so, um, yeah, in, inside the stores and other things, people would wear masks. Um, but you can walk, I can go for walks for a long time and hardly see anybody except somebody else on a walking on the other side of the road. So we were less, less vulnerable here, I guess. And um, yeah, because I, 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 one of the things that I worry about is I have um, a few, um, let's say sensitive lungs. And so the, the whole idea of, of catching COVID really worried me a lot. So being here and being kind of segregated a little bit and being able to control our environment, whereas in Calgary, there's just so many people, it's just a lot harder. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's so, it's just been so, I mean, you know, it, along with, you know, there's like a lot of negativity, but there are some positive things that people have found in their experiences as well. Absolutely. But, but you know, hear, hearing about how it's been different for everybody, it's actually really good um, because like all of our lives changed, but they changed in different ways, depending on what we do, and where we live and our family connections and things like that. Um, here in Victoria, um, you know, Vancouver Island's a pretty big island, but it's still an island. Um, and <laughs> yes. uh, in, in, here, at least in my neighborhood in Victoria, um, one interesting detail I like to say is that, you know, people really never wore masks outside. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a period of time when they, this, it was a little bit more common than usual, but, you know, people, people learned how to walk on the correct side of the sidewalk and 
more or less keep the distance they probably should have been normally anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know it, it is it it does depend on where you live. You know, I was I interviewed a woman once who uh, was living in London, and she would go to Hyde Park every day, which is a huge, mm-hmm. ginormous park where it's very easy to be healthy and you know yeah. stay away from people. But she had to go through these narrow, winding streets to get there. Yes. Um, and you know that was something that she would always keep in mind. So it's interesting, just interesting to think about how different. It oh, it it absolutely is. Um, I think people have handled it differently as well. Sometimes, um, if you treat it as a really negative thing, I think our minds get to think that way sometimes, right? And so it's it, it's uh, what it what it's made me realize is. Uh, how important hygiene is again. I think it was a good reminder. So, you know, at the very beginning, I was I would wash my groceries and I saw them. And then, you know, I realized we probably didn't need to. But what I found out was when I was wiping all my groceries down was how dirty they were. So I have continued to do it only because I know how, because people handle them, they, it's nothing to do with COVID anymore. It's just, it makes me feel better, right? I'm that's, just much more aware. That, that's so interesting. It, it just, thanks for sharing that. My, my version of that was realizing that I was actually living the kind of like, I don't know, like no, no offense to teenage teenagers, but I was living like a teenager, right? Like, oh, I've got one dab of toothpaste left. I'll just <laughs> make sure to go to the store this evening or I'm, you know, on the last piece of toilet paper. I'll just make, go down to the oh. store and, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, working in the tech sector, I think people in that industry were kind of like a little bit more, you know, um, had a little bit more internal advance warning kind of thing. So I never ran out of anything, but like right. I realized, and I sort of started thinking, of, not to go on too long, but you know, I started thinking about, you know, my parents both grew up on farms and, you know, when I grew up, like we never had, we were not rich, but like there was never an empty shelf in the kitchen, yeah. ever, ever. You fill it. Like an empty shelf was just something you didn't have. Oh. Because um, you didn't go in for groceries every day. Because you didn't. <laughs> because you didn't go in for groceries every day. What could make more sense? And like you know, and so like although there might there was never a shortage, right? Because again, you didn't. We didn't have like you know stockpiles of stuff, but you yeah. had. You just had extra. Yeah. And and so if you went to the store and for some reason they were out of tomato sauce, you know, well you you had some at home and you just made sure to look for it again next time, you know. And yeah. so I've I I now don't have any empty shelves, um, <laughs> and definitely have enough toilet paper. Um, the the, yes. the the last question I have for you before um, we go on to the next part of the interview where you talk about your your book um, is so I got to ask yeah I mentioned earlier that your podcast with Lisa Crispin is called uh, Donkeys and Dragons yeah and I know you get this question all the time but I did get to ask Lisa you know what's with you know why donkeys and and um, so my question for you is why dragons yeah so you know why the donkeys um, because Lisa's a donkey person so I've always had an interest in fantasy books and one of my favorite series is the Dragon Riders of Perm, um, where the riders, um, they, they become kind of one with the dragon. They can hear each other's thoughts and things. And I just think that that's such a, a fantastic, um, I, I just really, really, I'm, I can't even have the words here. But anyhow, it, it, it really feels good to me. And so, Combining, you know, the idea of fantasy and, and dragons and things, I just, uh, I called my company Dragon Fire. 
And, you know, I actually do have a dragon tattoo, a little bit of something personal. And so hence the donkeys and dragons. Oh, that's just fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that. And so, yeah, moving on to talk about your book, Agile Testing Condensed. Um, so for those for those listening um, who aren't aware of what those words mean, um, <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what Agile Testing is and maybe contrast that with some other form of, of software testing or process testing, I should say. Yeah, so when, when Lisa and I started um, talking about testing and Agile methods, right? Um, when we went to go write our first book, we thought, well, what are we going to call this? And, and we had been calling it agile testing just because it was easier to say than testing and agile, you know, teams. So, but once we got that brand, it just, it kind of stuck. And so the difference between what we would call traditional, say, testing on a, a waterfall project or something like that, where you get requirements and, and, specs and all of those things, right? Test cases. Testing um, within an agile realm or DevOps or any of these things means working very closely, collaborating, being part of, um, we call it early testing, testing um, the ideas right from the beginning, trying to prevent defects in the code. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, of course, we have to do, you know, exploratory testing and um, everything else, but it's a collaborative approach to building quality in. And that's really what we mean. Um, whereas traditional testing is kind of a testing afterwards, focused on let's find the bugs that exist. And we think that that's very expensive. So let's not put them in in the first place. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I like that's an interesting way of putting it because, um, you know, a lot of people would normally think, oh, yeah, you build it and then you test it. Um, and, you know, the way that would work is that, you know, you would then probably have the people who do the building and then you would hand it off to the people who do the testing. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the kind of product or process testing that you're talking about, the kind of the concept of testing is built in from the beginning um, right. and is a sort of integral to the whole team. That's absolutely, absolutely correct. And so building quality in would mean that you make sure that you are kind of, it's not just, it's not exactly just checking what you do all the time, but it's a little deeper than that. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that concept of building quality in. Okay. So let's go back to my first story about my, um, at the stock exchange, where I said my supervisor came in and said, Janet, how are you going to test that? Just think the difference if you think about if you were going to build something, if you first thought about how am I going to test it, right? It changes your whole mentality. It thinks it changes how you're going to build it because you are building testability in and you're going to start testing it in smaller chunks. Um, and that's really how you're building quality in. Just thinking about how am I going to test that? What does that mean, right? And if I, one question I've got is, so for example, um, if there's a team that's doing, uh, you know, what waterfall kind of mm -hmm. type processes, um, which we've, we've spoken about on the podcast before, I'm sure most of our listeners know what that is, but it's like, basically you can think of it as like something very planned step by step. And that plan is handed off to people to kind of go through the tasks that, you know, it's, it's kind of a crude and uncharitable way of putting it, but, but, you know, you can think of it that way. And so if you're brought into a team to try and say, Hey, like, let's, let's do things differently there's this agile thing uh, where we kind of like, it's maybe less hierarchical and less kind of like getting from point A to point B. 
kind of thing. Um, what, how do you first introduce them to what they can change in the way that they work together to yeah. achieve I, this kind of <laughs> culture? It's, it's a hard one and it will depend on the different teams, but sometimes it's, um, it, it's just starting at the very beginning to show people how they can start asking questions and, and challenge each other a little bit, right? Um, by saying, hey, what if some, you know, you just, you start um, by saying it's okay to ask questions um, because I've been with a lot of teams and uh, some teams have testers, some don't. Um, I'm a firm believer of, of testers on a team. I think they play a valuable role, though that role is changing. But a lot of times um, testers haven't felt um, the ability to challenge programmers, right? They just kind of tested whatever they got. And so for them to be able to have that ability to ask those questions early, to challenge the ideas takes a lot of courage and because they've not been used to it. And it's a completely different way of thinking. Um, and, and so I think that is part of, that's part of the um, challenge to moving, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting how, um, you know, people often think of, you know, software programming and, you know, digital product creation and maintenance as this sort of dry thing that sort of, you know, almost like, you know, you know, the stereotype of accounting or something like that, right? But it's so interpersonal. And, um, you know, when it comes to testing, you know, there's, there's inherently in certain cultures, especially if they're very hierarchical and sort of, you know, there's very formal or bureaucratic, mm -hmm. the, the idea of test asking some questioning what someone has done, right? You know, is, is how they, they might take it personally, they might take it as a threat to their career, things like that. One person I interviewed a long time ago was working on a um, car manufacturing floor. And he had this great story about how there was this one part of the process where there was some, I don't know, conveyor belt that took some parts from one thing to another. And sometimes parts would fall off. And if they fell off, they would fall into a trough of oil and other parts. And at one point they ran out of a certain part and his immediate superior told him to go fish out the parts from this trough. Oh. So they, they've fallen off. They've been there for who knows how long and they've been in this oil. And he's like, well, of course, he's thinking these are going to end up in cars. You know, yeah. people are driving around other people. You know, we can't put these things in there. That's wrong. And so he went to that guy's immediate superior. They were all guys. Uh, this was a while ago. <laughs> a while ago. And, and, um, and, uh, and told him and the guy, and the, the, you know, that, that person said, oh yeah, we can't do that. And so they had to stop production, which is, that's a big deal in, in yes. any manufacturing yep. process. But the, his immediate superior found him later and cho started choking him. His face just burning red wow. with, with fury. And it was because to that guy, like what mattered was him, himself, his career. Yep. And it, it, it wasn't exactly that he was like, crudely selfish or anything like that he was probably thinking about his kids in college or his mortgage or something yeah. like that and so if if you go into as a consultant as as you do if you go into an environment where there's actually a kind of formal structure that makes questioning yes. threatening is there anything yeah. you could you can do other than introduce people to like a, a guide a guide post or something like that 
Ah, yeah. Um, and if the environment, so a lot of times when I do talks and things, I talk about the environment and talk about safety, right? Because nothing will change. Uh, like I was in one company a while ago and they wanted me to, and quite often I get called in to fix the testers. Testing is behind, Test, testing is a bottleneck. Come and fix them. Most of the time when I go in, it is not the testers problem, it's the process, right? And we can make a, a few adjustments and we can work with them to get better. In this one case, I walked, I was in and I was working with them and, and, I, went and I said, all right, we have a bigger problem. And I said, I can't even work with your teams. I said, we need a, walk, a workshop with the management first. And I went in and I, so I was very blunt and very open and said, unless you fix this part of it, like the environment, the culture, nothing I do with your teams is gonna help them. So, you know, either we have to work on this first or just tell me to go away and you'll be happy the way you are. Find another consultant who will do what you want them to do, right? So sometimes as a consultant, you have to make those hard choices. And I, I firmly believe in really solving what the real problem is. And safety, if, you're, if you think you're gonna get blamed for something, you will never change. You will never, uh, and you can't ask your team to change, right? You can't ask them to experiment if they fail and they get blamed. It's, it's so interesting, the concept of team um, often, it's a word that we use all the time. That's actually a great metaphor, um, uh, but it's often used to mean just like a group of people. That's the, right. that's the team, but they're not always acting they're like teams, always right? Team. Like, you know, and in, in LeanPub, we're, we're pretty small and we've, but we've, we're, you know, we've been around for a while, but we've still got kind of a startup culture. And, you know, I've naturally got a kind of like worst case scenario mind. Like that's where I go to with any, with any idea right away. Right. And, um, uh, you know, in our, in our environment, you know, if someone proposes something and, and someone else finds a problem, just sees right away that there's a problem with it. Yeah. The, the, the response is, Oh, good catch. Yes. You know, not, not, not shame or, or, yep. or fear of being fired or something like that. It's, you know, well, cause we're, because we're a team, you know, and yep. we're all trying to succeed together, but that's really hard to do in bigger organizations in particular. Oh, it is. It is because their culture has been around for so long and, and it's, it grows, right? It grows organically. Um, sometimes they will change um, one person at the top. And you can see the whole culture of a company change along with it, depending how that one person acts. Right? Oh yeah, uh, that reminds me. I remember I was once working in investment banking and um, uh, our company was kind of notorious for not wearing ties unless, uh, unless we went into meetings. So yeah. the kind of loose collar thing, right? And, um, and in, a, in a normally very staid kind of environment. And um, we got a new CEO and there was a company-wide email <laughs> oh, got to no. wear your ties and oh. it, was, it was really interesting because he was he was clearly partly doing it just to like yep. show, show who's boss yep. uh, which was an interesting culture change uh, the former boss didn't feel like he needed to show people who was boss uh, but it was also just it was just, it was like an indication that like things, I, are, changing. I, things, things are changing but also that um, in my view anyway that I'm 
now I'm going off on a total digression, but that, that, <laughs> that, that he didn't, that he didn't understand what the value was in us being yep. a little bit different. Um, and, and the sort of that we were more realistic than performative was actually something that made us really competitive in a very competitive space, right? right? That like, you know, if we, you can dispense with the formality when it's not needed, yes. put, put it on when you do, but don't do it when yeah. you don't need it. But anyway, it's just, it's just another example of how complicated and personal and interpersonal these kinds of things can be even in very large organizations yeah. uh, that are doing very serious things. Moving on to the next part of the interview, the last part, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience writing. So you said your first book with Lisa, you worked together for a year and a half. <laughs> uh, it was published with a conventional publisher. Yes. And I was just wondering if you, you published, I think, two two books with him. We did. Um, and how, what was your experience like being a sort of conventionally published author? Well, it was because it was a, my the first book wasn't my first time doing it. Um, is that they owned the timeline. They owned um, what we could and couldn't do to a certain extent. Um, we had a fair bit of leeway with it, um, especially the second book, because the first one was such a success. So we actually had uh, more leeway and they had, they had more trust in us, I guess. Um, and so a little bit different. But our first book, um, it was a learning experience all the way around for us because they asked us to do it. They asked us to do um, 300 pages. And we said, oh, we can't write 300 pages. It turned out to be 500 pages. Uh, totally ridiculous. But anyhow, we had lots to say, I guess. But they asked us if we could reduce our timeline because it was urgently needed. And so Lisa and I were actually quite, quite uh, um, responsive and we did, uh, but we didn't have the control, right? Um, but it turned out to be a, a great book, so it's okay. But it was, it was, um, it was a, very stressful. Second book, less stressful because both Lisa and I had a better idea of what was coming, what was going on. We could um, challenge a little bit more. We knew a little bit more, um, but yes, it, uh, it, it was stressful, mostly because of the, and we, we, feel, we felt very, because um, both Lisa and I are, are, if we say we're gonna do something, we will do it. So it wasn't that we wanted to push out the time or do anything else. So we just, we stressed ourselves a little bit more to get it done. And uh, you decided to self-publish this latest book, Agile, book. Agile Testing Condensed. Uh, what, was, yeah. what was that experience like? Well, we actually thought about it for our second book. And then we decided that neither of us had uh, the time or the inclination to figure it out. But by this third book, we decided we, well, we wanted to, because we were lacking, a small book. And so we thought, we can self-publish a small book. <clears throat> we don't need to go through all of that. Because um, one of the things is you don't have control when you have a publisher, right? Of things like translations. So <clears throat> yes, we decided to go through Lean Pub because we had a lot of friends that had done it and recommended it. And um, so, it was some learning. I, I did the, I'm going to say the technical part, getting it into the Lean Pub format. That was kind of my um, 
area that I worked with. And so there was asking questions. You were very responsive, by the way. Oh, <laughs> and the forum thanks. was pretty good and everything else. So my questions pretty much got answered as we went. Um, but it was a, a learning experience again, because something different. But I think because it was a small book, it was much simpler than trying to tackle a great big 500 page book. I'm not sure if I would have been willing to do that, at least for the first time. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. One of the, you know, insofar as Lean Pub works, you know, um, uh, it does partly because we listen very closely or we try to, to, you know, every time we hear from an author or someone working on a book, you know, about issues or questions that they have because mm -hmm. you know if, if you've got to reach out to us that means we've there's either something we need to do that we haven't done or there's something we need to do better or at least not as badly as we're doing it um and so and so a good we, way to look at it we yeah. oh no every every interaction is like you know we take ser seriously like what what do we need to do here so that we we're not sort of making people uncomfortable or wasting their time or anything like that um and on that note actually um so the last question i always ask on this podcast if the guest is a lean pub author is if there was one thing we could fix for you that really bugged you about lean pub or if there was one feature we could build for you uh what would you ask us to do um i'm trying to think of what the one was right now i'm struggling how to import word docs back in i've done it once i know it's there and it's not that hard but <laughs> i'm starting on another idea um but that's not it. It would be something around, um, because we have lots of translations now. And so uh, a better understanding, I think, from um, somebody else translating, how they can be a translator. For, so for, for example, to be a, trans, a translation, um, I have to be the primary author to, so that they can do it. So they can't be the primary authors and be a translation of our book. So I'm always asking our, our translation people, can you please make me a primary author? <laughs> so, so thanks very much for bringing that up. We actually, it's it's pretty new, but we actually do have an article in the Help Center now about, about how to do that process. And it's, again, okay. it's, it's for both. And so, yeah, just for people listening. So um, we do have a special translation feature, which means that you can sort of say a book is a translation. And so of another Lean Pub book. And so on the book that's on the sort of like original book, it'll say, this book has been translated into blah, blah, blah. And you can have helpful links. And the book that is a translation, if people come across that, you can, this is a translation of such and such. Um, now, in order to establish that chain, what we call the primary author needs to be the same on, all the, all, the on all the books. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's another reason for that, which I'll get into in a moment. But you be, how do you become a primary author? Well. So here's how we here's here's the process we recommend basically if you're going to have to have a lean pub book translated the person who wrote the original book creates a new book in the language that it's going to be the book is going to be translated into and then they add the translator as a co-author on the book and then the co-author has full access to everything that they need um, uh, provided to them basically by being added as a co-author by the by the primary author so once once as an as a, what I'm trying what, one thing yeah, I'm trying to get across is that as the as the original author you don't have to do a lot of work you just set up yeah. the book you add the co-author and then off they go to the races okay. uh, on on their own uh, but the other very key thing in addition to being able to use the trans this is a translation of or this book has been translated into into feature the other thing about being the primary author is that you're the one who sets the royalty split 
um, okay. which makes sense uh, if if the book is a translation of your book, typically. I mean, you, you probably haven't like, <laughs> sold the rights to anybody or anything like <laughs> no, that, no. right? So so that okay. way, that way, and so basically what it means is the person who is the primary author um, uh, sets the royalty split. The co-authors can't change it, <laughs> basically. All right. So uh, this is this is this is very interesting. I should have asked you this question a long time ago. <laughs> oh no, that's no. And we should have had an article about it a long time ago. Uh, but but yeah. So that and um, and you can change as the primary author. You can yeah. change that royalty split yes. any time if they're like, oh, I'm bringing. If they want to bring on a co-translator, you can just yeah. deal with that. Add them. Add them. Um, uh, you can't you can't retroactively change royalties that have been uh, like allocated already. But but you can do it at any particular. You can change it at any particular moment in time going right. forward. Um, and also, but one thing you mentioned is um, we do have a feature that lets you, as the primary author, set someone else as the primary author. So if you're okay. a translator, if you're an eager translator and you've gone ahead yes. and created a book and then you hear this episode or, yeah. you, or you come across our article, you can easily rectify the situation by yeah. just going onto the author's page uh, in your LeanPub admin yep. area and then change the primary author to the, what you do is you add that's the- normal, Yeah, that's normally what they've been doing now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, okay. you, add, you add the original author as a co-author and then right away you can just switch them to be the primary author okay. and, and then it's all it's all done. So that's that's how that works. Well, that's, that's really good to know. So now I know going forward. And we'll make sure to find ways to make that more prominent <laughs> so you don't have to operate in the dark like that. Uh, well, um, a lot of it is learning by doing. Oh yeah, right? of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, um, Janet, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to be a guest on the Front Matter podcast, and thank you very much for using LeanPub as a platform for your book, um, Agile Testing Condensed. Thank you very much. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.